Thank you for listening to this podcast from Monclova Road Baptist Church. For more information about this message and the ministries of Monclova Road Baptist Church, please visit monclovabaptist.org. All right, Exodus chapter number 12. And um, I think we got through the first 28 verses. Remember the substitute. I want to get into this evening number point number two, the severity and the mercy of God. And I think we touched on that last time, but I want to finish, make sure we've finished all these thoughts. Look with me in verse number 29 of Exodus chapter number 12. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And so we find in the very first verse that all of the firstborn, this this last plague affected everybody in Egypt, all the land of Egypt. It didn't matter if you were rich, it didn't matter if you were poor, if you were in the palace or you were in a dungeon. The Bible here says every single person was affected by this plague. Now, when you think about this plague, it's difficult, I think some would have a difficulty understanding how God could do such a thing. I mean, God allowed, it was it was his plan, he allowed for every house in Egypt to suffer death. And who died? The, the Pharaoh or the adults that were doing the beating? If you look at this, it almost appears like somebody that wasn't even involved in any of the decisions that were being made. The, the child, the son, he's the one that, he's the one that died. He had to suffer because of the um, decisions that, in many of their cases, their father was making. But this happened in all the land of Egypt. In verse number 30, and Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all of the, all of the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And he called for Moses and Aaron by night, and said, Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as ye have said. Also take your flocks and your um, herds as ye have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And so he comes in the middle of the night. Now you've got to remember, this is not something like in our home, if something happened to one of our kids in the middle of the night, we probably wouldn't know it until the next day. Right? Our kids are all upstairs and... Um, Unless it's Chloe, then she would be downstairs into our bed. Uh, that's a pretty normal thing there. But in normally, in a house like an American home, things can take place in your home, and you're really not sure what happened until you wake up the next morning and figure out, hey, something's wrong here. In this situation, the average person at this time, they were all living in the same place, and their homes would be very small. Matter of fact, their bedroom, their sleeping areas would be the entire family in the same room. And so if something were to happen in the middle of the night with one of their children, they would know immediately. And so here, think about this situation that's happening. Here, in the middle of the evening, this didn't take till morning for them to figure this out. In the middle of the evening, in Pharaoh's house and in, in everyone's house, there was a situation that happened that when it caused everyone to awake, and it was something they dealt with immediately, and the cry that went out. Could you imagine... The entire town, the it, towns or cities all throughout Egypt, what that would be like. Now, last week or so, you know, there were a few hundred people that got sick and the cry that went out. Matter of fact, I had, I had the news 
contact me, wanted to interview me Monday uh, to uh, talk about donuts. Believe that. My wife wouldn't let me get on the news and talk about donuts because um, I was denying it up until yesterday that I even had a donut. And she said, no, you had one. You had to have had one. <clears throat> so just a, 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 a stir like that, a few hundred people, this affected everybody. I mean, you would wake up in the middle of the night in tears and crying, your neighbor and their neighbor and everybody all around you, the entire city would wake up in the torment that would be going on. And so when they woke in the middle of the night, it was so bad, Pharaoh says, get out of here now. Just leave. Get everything and get out. Don't even wait. And so here we have all of these people in the middle of the night. He's saying, get out of here. And then what he says, I think is very interesting and very important for us to see here this evening. In verse number 32, what does he say? The end of verse number 32, somebody? And bless me also. Was he saying that up until that point? No. Up until that point, Pharaoh is resisting God. What he was doing even up until that point, everything that God did, Pharaoh's attitude was we can do better. He saw no value in Israel's God. He saw no reason to worship Israel's God because he thought the gods of Egypt were better than the God of the Egyptians because he's in control. The Egyptians are slaves. Why do I need your God? And remember, the purpose of this was for that God would deliver Israel, but also that all the nations of the earth would know who the God of Israel was. And so God was accomplishing his plan. And it shows us here in verse number 32, and I know those of us that know the story, Pharaoh changes his mind, but at this point here in this this point, the first time we see Pharaoh is acknowledging that he needs something from the God of Israel. Let's go on reading. In verse number 33, and the Egyptians were urgent upon the people, meaning get out, leave, that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we be all dead men. Again, for the first time, all now of Egypt is seeing the power of the Almighty God. Remember, all of the plagues leading up to this was a way for God to deal with Egypt and their idolatry. All the plagues showed that God was more powerful than any of the Egyptian gods. So the, the serpent god, remember when they threw the, threw the, uh, the um, uh, staff down and Moses' staff ate all of the other staffs, what did that show? That they worshiped the serpent god, but the god of Israel, the true one god, was greater and mightier than any god the Egyptians were going to sacri- uh, serve. And so we find God is dealing with the Egyptians as well. God was not just desiring for Israel to worship him, his desires for all nations to worship him right we understand that that's his goal the bible at the end says this that every nation every tongue every tribe is going to fall to feet of jesus and worship the lord and god's desires for all of the world to worship him and spend eternity with him and so he's dealing with israel but he's also dealing with egypt and we see the response their concern in verse number 33 they finally realize that god is powerful you know, they come to the realization that none of their gods can give them the safety or the protection that they th- they thought they could give. 
every single thing that the Egyptians were putting their, their, their life into, their safety into, their security into, God showed them that he's the one. Now they're recognizing this. God is powerful. Get these people out of Egypt because now we're dead. It's not just about frogs in the water or frogs in the oven or frogs in your bed or locusts coming or uh, water turning to blood. It's about life and death now. And that's a powerful God. The Egyptians, the Egyptians, their magic and their, their, their priests, they could do a lot of trickery, but you know what? They never had the power over life and death. They realize right now that God actually has a power over life and death. They see the power of God here in verse number 33. The people took their dough. Um, <clears throat> I don't think that means money there. Um, that's, uh, that was just a joke. I'm sorry. That was a bad joke. The people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. The children of Israel, Israel did according to, to the word of Moses, and they borrowed. I like this. They borrowed. They borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. I don't suggest any of you ladies to go to your neighbor's house when they're not home and borrow anything. Remember here, there was no intent on them coming back. I'm not quite sure why they used the word borrow there, but they, um, the Bible did. But it wasn't coming back. Just imagine all of these people. Um, have, you ever, have you ever seen that, um, the, that show Beverly Hillbillies? Do you ever see the beginning of it? Listen to a story about a man named Jed. Poor mountaineer, barely kept family fed. And as they're, as they're getting into Beverly Hills, like there's a rocking truck and all this junk on the back of this old beat up truck, you know, going into Beverly Hills. I don't know why, but when I read this passage of scripture, that's what I imagine Israel leaving Egypt in like Granny's chair and all of this stuff is like just roped up on the back of Jed's truck, you know, getting out of Egypt quick. And they're rich. Think about this. They came into Egypt some 400 years previous. They're slaves now. They have nothing. They're not working to make money. Egypt, the Egyptians owned everything. You were their slaves. They pretty much worked just to have a place to live in, in something to eat. Their needs were met, but there was nothing extra. And remember leading up to this, they're in bondage. They're, in, they're like in true slavery where if they didn't even get the amount of bricks done the way they were supposed to be done, they were going to get beat. There was no time for them to collect material possessions. But they're getting ready to leave Egypt rich like Uncle Jed. All kinds of stuff on a truck. All borrowed stuff. <laughs> Look with being. Let's continue reading. They took their dough and and uh, verse number 35, I'm sorry. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and, ju and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they lent. They lent. Lent, that kind of means like, hey, give us this back. But they weren't getting anything back. Lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. That word spoiled means this. They got their good things. It's like going to, into somebody's house, taking everything good, and that's what you leave with. 
Hey, there's a garage sale. I'm passing up the garage sale and I'm going into the, the jewelry store in the bedroom or the clothes in the bedroom, not the stuff you want to get rid of. They left with spoils. If you remember when they came into the land of um, uh, Jericho and Achan, when he had spoils that he took, there were goodly garment, there were gold and, and silver. These, when, when, when the Bible speaks of these words, the spoiled, the, they spoiled the Egyptians, what, what that means is this, they took good things, the best. So when, when the Egyptians, this is important, we're going to see this in just a moment, when Israel left Egypt, they left rich, right? They left with so many resources. I want you to think this through, and if you have notes, uh, a couple of you that came in, do you need notes back there? If you do, can I get you to run those back to those folks? There's a few of them that came in. While you're up here, just give us a golfing tip. Come on up here and help me out. Saturday's coming quick. Yeah, well, it's not me that needs it. It's Alan that needs the tip on Saturday. <laughs> All right, follow me. We're going to pick up in ver uh, uh, point number two. Remember the severity and the mercy of God. In these verses that we read, the firstborn child is, uh, in the time of Moses, it, he held much responsibility. He had some wonderful privileges. And understand just on a normal situation just to lose a child would be devastating but in, the t in these days to lose the firstborn to lose a firstborn child would be extra devastating to the family because everything was dependent upon that firstborn child remember it was Jacob that did everything he could to trick Esau out of the birthright what that means is the oldest child got the blessing the oldest child got all the resources it would have been lousy to be the second son in the family because you'd watch your brother, older brother, get everything that your dad had. Everything. Anything that had value would go to the first child. In, in those days, they desired to have boys. And if they had several girls and didn't have a boy to carry on that family name, they were looked down upon. And they felt they were looked down upon because they wanted a boy to carry on that name. Because in that time, they were carrying on the family's uh, uh, job, their trade, everything, everything that was about the family was carried on through that oldest boy. Society, obviously, in our society today, a lot of that's changed just because of the, 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 the issues within families. The family unit, the family structure, how families now are divided nowadays, it's, it's difficult maybe for us to understand the importance of that firstborn child here in these days. He carried on. He would become the family patriarch once the oldest of the family would pass on. He was the one people would go to for wisdom. He was the one that would people go, would go to for wealth. In the families, if they didn't have a bank in these days that they would just go borrow money from, so you would go to the patriarch, the oldest of the family, to borrow whatever was needed to keep it within the family so the family's needs were met. And so this was such a major, important position and it was devastating to lose the firstborn in these days. And, and with this in mind, God's judgment on Egypt, he's killing the firstborn. I just want to look at that, the, the severity of God. Killing the firstborn. It tells of the seriousness of this transgression. Because God is not a God that just just flippantly makes a decision. You know what? I'm going to destroy. I'm going to have every child killed. No, there is a reason. 
God doesn't just give judgment to hand out judgment. It's not like dad, he's a dad going through the house, had a bad day, he's upset, and everyone's just getting in trouble because uh, dad's upset. That's not how God deals with human beings. There's a reason for it. Even when we might not like the reason, there is a reason in this situation, God is dealing with the firstborn in Egypt because of the sins of the fathers of there in Egypt. What they were doing was severe. Now, you say, what was so bad about what they were doing? I want you to remember what they had done previously when Moses was a child. Pharaoh and the Egyptians were killing the firstborn of all of Israel. Right? Every male child that was born, we're going we're gonna to kill the male childs that are born. And they were, they were taking and killing the Israelites. I'm going to just take a, a regress here a little bit uh, uh, and, and just talk about the fact that I believe this, that the nations that kill their unborn or kill their babies, I believe this, God's going to judge. God's going to judge. And I know there have been some, I, I think, I, I feel, I, I believe this, the young lady that um, maybe is young in life and has to, uh, makes a decision to have an abortion, I believe in some cases that young lady may be a victim of it as well. And she needs help. And I don't believe that we ought to beat people up that maybe have had made a decision early in their life and, and, and made that decision. I think they need God's grace and they need help and they're living that every day of their life. And, and I think that we ought to minister to them. But I believe this, that when, when it comes to the fact where we don't value the life of another human being, God will judge a nation like that. We live in a country today with all of the things of this past weekend in, in Charlottesville and, and just all of the, the prejudice and the racism. I believe that's wickedness and that is sin. For us to look at someone else, it doesn't matter the color of their skin, it doesn't matter their stature in the community, it doesn't matter if they're in Pharaoh's house or they're in a dungeon, life is important to God because God made man in his own image. And there's never a time where we ought to devalue somebody else's life and take their life. It's sin. And we should never be a part of that. Our thinking should never be a part of that. But we find here, Egypt, Pharaoh thought that he had the right just to kill because he wanted to kill. And God comes along and in his last judgment to Israel, you know what he shows? He's God. He's the one true God. And he judges sin. He, he judges it. He shows his powerful display in, in um, this great reversal that now he's in control. God began striking down this firstborn of Egypt. The destroyer was going to go through the mightiest nation in the world like this knife through butter, and he was going to show that I'm powerful. Remember, his whole goal was to show Egypt that he is God. His goal is to show Israel that he is God. Israel has been exposed all this time to the Egyptian gods. Israel has been exposed to, to the Egyptian lifestyle. And God is about ready to show everyone in the world he is the one true God. And he is all-powerful. And he judges sin. Here we see God kept his word as well in verse number 22 of, of uh, 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 Exodus chapter 4. Look with me in verse number 22. If you just turn back a few pages, Exodus 4, verse number 22. 
And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. And so we find God is giving a promise. And when God promises something, we must understand he means business. Do you ever do, you ever do something, say something, threaten something? And then the person like called your bluff. Has ever happened? I was talking to someone this afternoon. I was telling my wife about this and we're laughing about this. I was trying to help somebody through a situation and that what they did is they made, they made a decision and, and the person called their bluff. And now they're like, pastor, what am I to do? And I'm like, you never should have said that to begin with. This is what you should have done. But now, yeah, you're in trouble now. Here God says to Israel, let my people go. This is my firstborn. And if you don't let my firstborn go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to destroy your firstborn. You know what Israel, the Pharaoh thought? He's bluffing. Who is he? Moses, Aaron, who are you and who's your God? God steps in and God shows them what I say I mean. God doesn't make empty threats. When God says something... He means it, and he follows through. That's something that we ought to fear about God. When we read his word, we can't live whatever lifestyle we want to live and understand that, well, God says that this is what's going to happen when we choose to live this life. Guess what's going to happen? Don't be surprised when we choose to, to defy God, when we choose not to live according to God's word. And when the consequences come, we can't get upset and say, what kind of God is a God that gives consequences when he warns us, this is what comes. This is the, this is the problems that come, and this is the judgment that's going to come. We're talking about end time prophecy on Sunday mornings. And it's a difficult passage of scripture. When we really talk about the judgments of God. I mean, to think that God pours out his judgment at the end of the, uh, end of the, end of the tribulation, the wrath of God. And we see that and we need to be careful to think, man, he is going to destroy innocent people. God is not ever going to destroy innocent people. If God were to destroy innocent people, that would make him an unjust God. Those that have rejected Christ, those that have chosen to live in their sin, those that have chosen to defy God and blaspheme the name of God are the ones that are going to endure the wrath of God and God is offering a way of escape. And I have here, remember the severity of God and the mercy of God. God is a merciful God. He is desiring, he is desiring for man to turn from their sin and to turn to him. In judgment, we deserve death. We deserve, we are dead in trespasses and sin. Because of the sin that was committed in the garden, the Bible says that every man now is born with that sin nature. And because of that sin nature, we are born in dead, uh, dead in trespasses and sin. We are born, the second we're born, we begin to die. And we then have to pay for every sin that we've ever committed. But God in his mercy 
He sent his son, Jesus Christ, who paid that sin debt. Why? So I don't have to pay that sin debt. How do I, how do I receive that free gift? By having faith in Jesus Christ, accepting that free gift of salvation that only comes through Jesus Christ. God is not an unjust. God is not a monster God because he judges sin. God is a just God. Therefore, sin must be judged. But he's a merciful God and he gives a way of escape. Isn't that a wonderful thing about God? If you really think about that. And that's again what God is showing us. Remember from the beginning of this study, we are looking at the redemption, the redemptive plan, that thread that goes throughout the Bible. And it seems like every chapter, even in the book of Exodus, when we're thinking about Israel's being delivered, you know what we see in every chapter? God's redemptive plan. Sin must be judged. God's mercy is present. Sin must be paid for, but God's mercy is available. And so we find, we see that God kept his word. God turned, turned evil on its head. He, he caused this evil that Pharaoh had done to become on Pharaoh and judged Pharaoh for it. Let me, let me hurry through this. There is only one true God. And this blow to Egypt, not only it, not only personally, it was not only personal to Pharaoh and to Egyptians through the loss of their son in the succession that would come through that firstborn, but it also theologically, it was a blow because what it showed was God's power over their gods. And so there was a personal loss here and theologically, they were challenged here because they did not believe in the one true God. And so, I want to, um, uh, let, me, let, me, let me hurry into this next point here. Number three, we see the, the deliverance of God. We see the deliverance of God here in this chapter. And I hope to get through these, um, this third point here tonight. In verse number 33, as we read, the Egyptians were urging upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we be all dead men. People took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up with their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses. And they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver, jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they lent unto them such things as they required and they spoiled the Egyptians. Let's look in verse number 37. The children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth about 600,000 on foot that were men besides children. And so what we find here, how many came into Egypt from during the famine, some 400 years earlier? 70. Israel was just a small family is what they were. Remember there were 11 children, right? One was already there. Joseph was already in Egypt. Just a small family, 70 people total in this family. Now, I know 70 people doesn't sound like, a, sound like a small family, but they were considered a small family. They're leaving Egypt, and the Bible says how many people? 600,000 men, plus women and children. These are just men. That's a lot of people. I mean, this is over a million people, from 70 people to over a million people. The numbers 
they say there could be up to 2 million people if you were to count if every man was married and each one had a, a, uh, several children. We're looking at almost 2 million people. Now, how many of you have ever seen the ball drop at New York, New York City? Anybody stay awake? Anybody? We say we want to. I don't know if we stay awake that late or not, but... You ever see the picture of all those people? And I've always said to Michelle, what do I say to Michelle every year, Michelle? What do I say? I want to go to New York City and watch the ball drop. And she says, if you do, you will be by yourself. I have no desire to go to a million people packed. Now, we've been there several times. We were on a mission trip there, helped start a church there. And we were there at like 2 o'clock in the morning, and it was like 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, it was just crazy. We, we've been there on several occasions, and I look around and thinking, man, a million people right here. That's a lot of people. Could you imagine a couple million people in the middle of the night leaving, packing up, tying stuff up, waking the kids up? Heading on out. 70 to potentially over 2 million people. Look, look in verse number 38. I think 38 is very important as well. And a mixed multitude went up also with them. Flocks and herds, even very much cattle. That mixed multitude, you know what those were? Those were people that weren't from Egypt. Or weren't from Israel, I'm sorry. They weren't Israelites. They were people from different countries. Now think about this, setting this stage, it's important to see this. God delivered Israel out of Egypt, right? There was a mixed company as well. These were people that were from other nations that may have even been in bondage in Egypt as well. But these are the ones that, you know what they did? These were not Israelites. These were not Egyptians. These were people from other nations that were freed from the Egyptian rule. It's important to see this. They were in bondage, or at least they were there in Egypt. What did they believe? They believed the God of Israel. If they believed in the gods of Egypt, they would have stayed in Egypt. What gave these, this mixed group of people the confidence to leave Egypt? Because they've seen what the God of Israel has done. And what they're doing is they're believing that the God of Israel is the answer. What they're doing is like Israel, they're rejecting Egypt in following the Lord, even though they don't understand. Right? So uh, let's, let's just keep that in the back of our mind here as we read on and begin to study these verses. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they brought forth out of Egypt. For it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not tarry, neither had they prepared for themselves any uh, victuals. Now the sojourning, verse number 40, now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. It came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed for all the children of Israel in their generations. You know what that verse is saying there? To the very day. Of 430 years, God brought them out. 
This was no accident. This was no mistake. God promised that he was going to bring them out after this time. And you know what this verse is confirming? It wasn't even a day late. Now, this is important. Have you ever said this? Boy, God always comes through, even though it's at the 11th hour, but at least God comes through. Who made that time clock? You did. I do. It's not the 11th hour for God. It's his plan. There's a difference between us thinking, oh no, this is it. It's almost out of time. Whoo, God came through again, almost like always comes through just in the nick of time. No, God always comes through in his time. We're the one that gets stressed out. We're the one that puts God on a time clock and God on a, on a timetable. And God says, you know what? 430 years ago, before this day came, I had this planned out. I knew this was going to happen. Pharaoh couldn't keep it from happening. You couldn't keep it from happening. You can't rush it and you can't delay it because it's God's time. We need to realize this through this passage of scripture. We need to be on God's time, not try to get God in our time. And how often do you think in this passage of scripture, in those 430 years, the people of Israel thought God's forgotten about us? We're left here in bondage and God doesn't even know what's going on. And the entire time, God knew exactly what was going on because God was desiring to what? Bring Israel out of Egypt and Egypt out of Israel. He was calling a chosen people for what reason? Go back to Genesis chapter 15 and verse number two, I believe it is. You would find this, um, that, that uh, God says to Abraham, I'm gonna call, I want to call you out and I want to uh, bless you and multiply your seed. And through that seed, I'm going to bless and I am going to bless all the nations of the earth. This was all about God's plan of blessing. This was all all about God's plan of what? Redemption. God is seeking to save. That's his whole goal. Our life is not some life that is, is, we're born and we live this, this life and, 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 and we live it on faith and we live it on chance. God has a plan. I won't. I won't embarrass these two back there in the back, but if you ever listen to their story, it's an awesome story, isn't it, Julie? Yeah, can I tell a little bit of it? Will I embarrass you? You guys aren't like fighting today and splitting up today or anything, right? Okay. You learned, huh? Never fight with a woman. So these two are coming, come to church at Monclova Road Baptist Church like back in November. But they didn't come together. They didn't even know each other. He walks in, she walks in. She noticed him and he might have noticed her a little bit, but didn't even know each other. Just happened to come to church together. And really never talked to each other. Maybe, maybe kind of, you look kind of familiar, but not really. She is to meet, she is meeting a coworker or a friend at Bob Evans in Perrysburg. She gets to Bob Evans in Perrysburg, and she's like to her friend, where are you? I'm in a parking lot. I don't see you. And her friend says, I'm right here. Well, I'm right here. Well, if you're right here and I'm right here, we're not right here. Well, there's two Bob Evans. Julie had the right one. How do we know she had the right one? She was at the one God wanted her to be at. She goes inside this Bob Evans waiting for her friend or waiting to contact. And this guy, 
this bachelor who it was either fish sticks and french fries in the, in the toaster oven or Bob Utvin's that night. Homemade meal. What one would you pick? Fish sticks and french fries. Yeah. No, he goes to Bob Evans. It just so happens that his phone is dead. He says to this lady that's sitting there that he goes to church with that he doesn't even know, do you mind if I charge that phone up that you're like, you're blocking the phone charger is what he really meant to say. Can you get out of the way, lady? I need the phone charger. They sit there for four minutes. Four minutes they talk back and forth. She's not supposed to be there. He's supposed to be eating fish sticks and french fries. She's supposed to be at a different Bob Evans. Where do I know you? Monclover Road Baptist Church. You don't go to Monclover Road. I, you go, yeah, yeah. And they're sitting there tonight. I, won't, I didn't tell the whole story, but you know what God does? When we think all has failed, we think all is wrong, when we think life is a disaster, when we think that God doesn't care, you know what God has? His own time clock. And it's not depending upon you. Our sicknesses, our pain, our suffering, our, all of that is about God's time to clock, not ours. We traveled Sunday. My wife and I left church here Sunday night and drove to Chicago. A friend of a uh, fellow that we had here preached to our kids, um, Brian Hassey, his father-in-law. He, uh, he's a pastor. His father-in-law passed away and uh, pretty devastating death and so we wanted to be there for the funeral Monday morning and so we drove through the night to get there and got up and I'm looking at my clock and there's an hour time difference and I'm like I don't trust this clock because I know what's going to happen I'm going to set my alarm and in the middle of the night my clock's going to change but if I set it an hour ahead I know what's going to happen it's going to change if I don't set it I know what's going to happen I'm going to get up an hour early, and it's 2.30 in the morning, and I need an extra hour of sleep. I don't want to wake up. You know what it was? I didn't trust the clock. I didn't trust it. I knew it would get me in trouble. God has a time clock. And what we find in these verses here, when he says in verse number 41, it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the self-same day, it came to pass. It was all in God's timing. You know what Israel had to learn? Why, God, why does God have that there? What's the significance of that? You know what I believe the significance is? We have to learn to trust God. We have to learn to trust his timing. Have you ever been frustrated because God didn't get it done in the time you thought you need, he needed to get it done? We need to learn to trust God. I am sure, now remember, Moses is 80 years old now. So for all you math people, is that about 350 years? 350 years in bondage, what's happening? Pharaoh's killing babies. How many of you would think, that's a good time for God to deliver Israel? Right there. God, what? You didn't deliver Israel. I thought you were God. I thought you were just. Because it's not God's time. Your emergency doesn't dictate God's timing. Then Moses, 40 years later, 
He sees Israel is in bondage. So that's what, 390 years into bondage? Moses kills an Egyptian man because he's angry because the Egyptians have Israel in bondage and he doesn't understand. This needs to be taken care of. I'm going to take matters in my own hand and then I'll do that. God, why don't you? And God says, because it's not my timing. The burning bush that Moses walked to was exactly in God's timing. The plagues that took place, they were all God's timing. All the way to the day, the self-same day, that clock hit 430 years and God said, okay, it's time. Pharaoh, you can't keep them in. And Moses, it's time to lead them out. Aren't you glad that God has timing? Let me me close with these thoughts here. We're about done. Exodus chapter 33, let's look at these verses that we just read, and I want to look at remember God's deliverance. There was a man by the name of John Newton. Have have you ever heard of the name John Newton? Anybody know that name, John Newton? John Newton was spent much of his life on ships, and he was involved in slave trade. He was caught up in numerous sins. John Newton was a sinful, sinful man. And God spared Newton's life a number of times at sea, yet Newton, I'm reading of Newton's um, uh, testimony here, yet Newton did not recognize the providence of God. Shortly before he was born again, Newton and his crew were delivered from a storm that would have swallowed their ship had they not reached land. As God had been working in his life, Newton began to see God's providence and deliverance time and time again through the years. He saw the coming of deliverance. If you were to read Newton's biography, you would find Newton was one that lived a sinful life. Newton was a one that never uh, uh, rejected, he rejected the Lord, he rejected salvation. But you know what? God just kept after him, and God kept after him, and God kept after him. You know what eventually Newton did? John Newton trusted Christ as a Savior. Aren't you glad, aren't you so glad that God is a God of second chances? How many of you, you heard the gospel more than once before you trusted Christ? Any of you? more than one time. You know, aren't you glad that God doesn't just say, you know, you've heard the chant, you've had the chance to hear it once, you've rejected, I'm done with you, I'm moving on. Now, Newton here, you know what he finds? Newton, just like all of us, he found this, he found that God is a God of deliverance. And the Israelites, likewise, would see the coming of God's deliverance. Here in the book of Exodus, that with the verses that we read we find this, this Exodus is taking place. And the Lord told the Israelites to be ready. He says, I want you to be ready. And they were ready. And that time finally came. Okay, so Israel left the land. They, they, they just plundered all of the good resources of the Egyptians. And, and God told them to. He told them they were going to leave. Look at me in verse number 35. You see that again? And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses. And they borrowed. So they didn't steal. This was God's plan that Israel would take the valuable things here in Egypt. And I want to show you three promises here that I believe are worth looking at here. Three promises in particular that are fulfilled in Israel getting out of Egypt right here at this time. All right, first promise, number one, is this. Look with me in in Genesis. Just turn back to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. The first promise that we see, we're looking at remembrance, remembering God's provisions. God promised, okay? God promised in Genesis 15, verse number 14. We find verse 14. He promised this, and also that nation whom shall they shall serve will I judge. 
and afterward they shall come out with great substance. God is speaking of Egypt there. God says, I'm going to, the one that they served, I'm going to judge him. Did God judge Israel, uh, Egypt? He kept his word, didn't he? The first thing that we find here in God's deliverance, these promises, this, ver- this verse in verse number 14 of Genesis chapter 15, God gives a twofold promise. He says, I'm going to judge the one that the people served. And secondly, they are going to leave. See verse number 14? And they, uh, afterward, they shall come out with great substance. Did both of those things happen? Remember Uncle Jed with Granny? Rock around the top. Rich. They borrowed silver and gold and all the spoils of the Egyptians. This isn't what they brought in. They were a small country. A small, a small family. They're not great riches. They came in and Egypt swallowed them up. Their 70 small people and their herds. Compared to what Egypt had, they had nothing. But listen to me. They are leaving Egypt by the millions, leaving with Egypt's wealth. Now, was that because of something that the Israelites did? No, it was because of a promise that God gave. God promised, Israel, I'm going to judge Egypt, and you're going to leave out of Egypt with great substance. We come all the way to Exodus chapter number 12, in the verses that we read, you know what we find? Egypt's judgment, and we find God providing for Israel more than they ever thought. That's a picture of salvation, isn't it? Listen, you go into this world with nothing. Matter of fact, you go into this world in bondage, but the moment that you get saved, look at the resources that you have. You have eternal life. Now, don't listen to these televangelists. I found some videos, some of these televangelists that, you know, give me money. And um, I found one that makes over $20 million a year. Could you imagine that? I was hoping you guys would say, yeah, that sounds like a good could pay for a preacher. $20 million a year. Listen to me, that, that's not true Christianity. You don't get saved because you get some material possession. We're not talking about material possessions a person gets saved. We're talking about the Holy Spirit of God indwells you, that you get peace and joy. You get the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You get eternal life. You're a child of God. The moment I got saved, I was dead in trespasses and sin, in bondage to sin. In the moment I got saved, I became a child of God. I like that song, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Aren't you glad it's not a thousand cattles on a hill, but it's a thousand hills he owns a cattle on? Because if it was a thousand cattle on a hill, that means this, sooner or later he'd run out. And Alan, you wouldn't get any. But if he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, you know what that gives you the thinking of? He never runs out of blessings. Our God can just keep blessing. You got a prayer request? Guess what? God can answer your prayer. You got a prayer request? Guess what? God can answer your prayer. You got a prayer request? God can answer your prayer. It's like all of God's children are able to come to him and God doesn't have to say, sorry, I gave it all to the last one. God is faithful in what God promises are true. What God is showing Israel here is this. And this was important for them to remember because they're coming to the Red Sea. They don't know it, but God does. 
They're coming to the wilderness. They don't know it, but God does. They're going to come to the walls of Jericho, and they don't know it, but God does. They're going to come to the Jordan River. They don't know it, but God does. You know what they want God to see? They're going to come to the wilderness, and they're going to need food. They don't know it yet, but God does. They're going to need water. They don't know it yet, but God does. And you have issues in your life that you don't know it yet, but God does know it. And what he's wanting us to learn now is this simple thought. He is faithful. He is going to supply where he promises. There's not a promise in God's word that you can find where you say, what happened to God? Israel, he said, Israel, all the way back to Moses. This is before they're even in, in bondage. This is longer than 430 years previous. He says this, in 430 years, at the end of this, oh, by the way, it's going to be 430 years to the day. At the end of this, I'm going to judge this nation, and you're going to leave with great substance. And to the day, he judged the nation, and they left with great substance. That's your God, and that's my God. Isn't that good to know? First thing we see here, first thing we see is this promise of his provisions, his deliverance. Second, the promise that they would be a great nation, multiplying nation. Look with me in Genesis. If you're still in Genesis, look to chapter number 12. Genesis chapter 12 and verse number two. He's speaking to Abraham. He says, Abraham, all the way back before, not before the seventy or not when the 70 came into Egypt, this is before the 70 were even thought of. This is before Abraham even knows his son. And I will make of thee a great nation. Abraham's by himself. It's hard to make a great nation out of one person, especially when your wife can't have kids. Do you agree with that? It took faith, didn't it? But what God says, he does. He says, I want to make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee. And I make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You see that? That's called the Abrahamic covenant. That's a very important covenant. I believe this, that covenant still exists today. I firmly believe that. I believe the reason why America has the blessings it has is because we as a nation choose to support and bless Israel. I believe that. The second promise here is that they're going to be great. When they walked into Egypt, there were 70 people. They were not a great nation. They're leaving Egypt now in the millions. These little old 70 Israelites are now leaving a great, mighty people. And God says what? I'm going to bless others because of you. And this is why I want to go back to the other verse when the Bible says, and the mixed company followed them out. They weren't of Israel. They weren't the Egyptians. There were other nations that were there in Egypt. They got delivered. They got the blessing that God was giving to Israel because of who? Israel. 
God never promised that he would deliver the mixed company out of Egypt 430 years previously. He promised he'd deliver Egypt or Israel out of Egypt 430 years previously. But he did promise all the way back to Abraham that other nations are going to be blessed because of you. And if the other nations bless you, I'm going to bless them. So you know what God does 430 years after they 70 people go into bondage? You know what he does? He delivers Israel and he also delivers a mixed company, other nations that get delivered out of Egypt because Israel's getting delivered out of Egypt. God kept his promise. You see that? It doesn't matter what we think our timetable is. God keeps his promises. He promised, number one, that Israel was going to leave this land with great substance and Egypt was going to get judged. It happened. He promised, number two, that he was going to bless them. They were going to become a great and mighty nation and other nations were going to receive a blessing because of them. And guess what we find in Exodus chapter number 12? Exactly what God said he would promise. Thirdly, thirdly, It's not like we need a third, but guess what? There's a third one here. The nations were being blessed through the seed of Abraham. This diverse crowd that went up with him. Look with me in verse number 38. Exodus chapter 12, verse number 38. And the mixed multitude went up with them, and flocks and herds, even very much cattle. They baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they were brought before Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not tarry, neither they that prepared for themselves any victuals. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And let me skip verse number 41 and come back to 42. And in the night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt, this is that night of the Lord to be observed for all the children of Israel in their generations. We find this, number one, we find Israel, we see the fulfillment of Genesis 15. Number two, we see the fulfillment of Genesis number chapter two. And, 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 and we say, see the same at the third promise in Genesis chapter 12 too, that other nations were going to be delivered. That's the same thing with redemption. God, he sends Jesus Christ to what? The nation of Israel, to the Jews. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Listen, he came to save. He came, he was born of Mary. He spent his entire ministry there in Israel. He's preaching, but Israel rejected Christ, or the Jews rejected Christ. And who got the benefit from that? You Gentiles, you and I. Israel received their Messiah. God was going to bless other nations. Isn't it something, we don't have a different Messiah than the Jews had? It's the same one. There's not a separate heaven. There's not a different God. There's not a different Messiah. It's the same one. The promise that God gave all the way back in the garden that he was going to supply the Redeemer all through the book of Exodus, we see that promise being fulfilled. All through the New Testament Gospels, we see that promise being fulfilled. God keeps his word. Now, if there was more people and you weren't so 
small in here tonight, you would say amen to that. Because when you leave here this evening, you know what you leave here knowing? God keeps his word. If God lies at any time, we can't trust salvation. How can I trust salvation? Because I'm, listen to me, I'm human. I don't know. I've never been the other side. I read a book of a kid that said he saw the other side, and then I found out the kid was lying. I, I don't know. I've never met anybody. Anybody here been on the other side? How do we know then? Because that's kind of scary to just, I mean, is that just a crutch that we hold on to? It's the truth. How do I know? How do I know because I've never been on the other side? How do I know there's a heaven? How do I know how to get there? I'll tell you how I know. Because God promises. In every single promise, all the way back here in Genesis, when God promised that he was going to send a Messiah, he was going to send a Savior, when he was going to provide a lamb to be the sacrifice so that mankind could be redeemed back to him, he kept his word. When he said to Israel, I'm going to make of you a great and mighty nation, he kept his word. When he said, I'm going to bless other nations, he kept his word. All through the Bible, you know what I find? God keeping his word. He doesn't lie. And if God has kept his word, not nine out of 10 things, not nine out of 20 things, or, or one out of 10 things, or even, even 99 out of 100 things, God keeps his word 100% of the time. I then can have confidence in his word that it's true. I don't know what tomorrow's going to face, but I know this. God said, my God can supply all your needs according to his riches in glory through Christ Jesus. You know what that means? Every need I have today, every need I have tomorrow is going to be supplied. God said this, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I never have to question, is God going to be there? He already promised. How can I depend upon his promise? Because he's never lied. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could depend upon a friend that way? That way? But the fact of the matter is, we're human. You ever tell someone you're going to call them and you don't? Alan, don't answer that. You ever call, tell somebody you're going to call them and you don't? That person, you know, it's not maybe that you lied, you just got busy. Because you're not perfect and you can't keep every promise you make. Even if you've got the best intentions, God can. He said this, no matter what happens, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. You know what that means? Everything in my life, God can use it for good on his timetable, not mine. How do I know that? Because he always keeps his word. Israel is getting ready to walk out of Egypt into, I don't know where. How can I trust him? when I get to this Red Sea? Because he trusted before. He, was, he never lied. How do I trust him when I'm hungry? How do I know? He says, all right, don't go in and in, in get this manna on the seventh day. Just get enough on the sixth day for two. How do I know if I can believe him? Because you know how bad it would be to get up the next day and God forgot and I was supposed to get manna and I listened to him and I shouldn't have and now all these kids are hungry? God doesn't lie. Six days, get man enough for two. 
What about water? He supplies. What about when I get to the Jordan, I got to cross this Jordan River? He supplies. Look at these walls in Jericho. I thought God said he was going to give us this. They're bigger than us. They're like, we're like grasshoppers, and that wall is huge. How do we know? Because every promise God has given. And listen to me, that's why I believe this. It's so important for us as Christians to keep a good memory. Because God doesn't lie. He's faithful. Remember, if he has been faithful all of this time, why would he stop? Why would he stop? I, um, I've watched this. Somebody sent me this commercial for golf wedges. And the guy lied to me on the, on the commercial. He said, this will fix your slice. Because you say, why do you need golf? Because mine were broke. Mine, were, mine broke. Mine kept going that way. And so they're supposed to go straight, but mine kept going to the right. And so mine were broke. And my wife's like, you got these. What do you need new ones for? And I kept telling her, because mine are broke. They don't work. And she said, what's wrong with them? I said, they, when, they're just, they go the wrong way. And so this guy promised that this would fix my problem. Well, I tried, tried to hide them, but the dumb UPS guy drops them off on the front steps and my wife gets home first. And so I got this box with these clubs in it. And I am so excited. I mean, I took them. And I mean, I was so excited. I, it, was, it, was, it was awesome. It was like Christmas morning. And I'm, the whole way there, I'm like, my slice is gone. How do I know? Because the guy told me so. He even gave me 15% off my order. And I'm like, this guy's good. He's going to fix my broken clubs. And he's going to do it for 15% off. This guy is good. I get up there, stand there, did it just like Tiger does it. I mean, just like it. Like Tiger used to. Like Tiger used to. <laughs> I stood there. I lined up. These clubs are broke. He sent me broken clubs. He sent me broken wedges, brother. I want to call this guy up and be like, you lied. You said this was fixed my game. I think it might even be worse. That's why they're on sale. I said to myself, I can't trust this guy. He lied to me. He has my money. It didn't help me. I joke about that. But the fact of the matter is this. God, whatever he says, it's faithful and true. Faithful and true. You never use a promise or live a promise and say, this didn't work. No time could Israel say, God, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. God was faithful all the way through. And listen to me tonight, no matter what you're going through, he's been faithful in the past, Alan. He's promised in the future. I know one day that I'm going to be at the feet of Jesus for all of eternity. You know how I know that? You know how confident I am of that? I am 100% sure. You know how I know I am 100% sure? Because God has never lied. And he says, this is the plan, and therefore I trust that plan. And by trusting that plan, I know what my future holds. That's how good God is.
And that's what Israel learned in Exodus chapter 12.